My teacher kind of used to sum it up like this. He used to say, there is no such thing as good or bad meditation. There is only awareness or non-awareness. And that's it. You can't fail. That's meditation guru Andy Puttacombe this week on the Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome or welcome back. I am Rich Roll. I am your captain on this adventuresome expedition. And the mission is to help you live and be better. So each week, I sit down with the best and the brightest across all categories of life, health, and excellence to educate, entertain, elucidate, inform, and inspire you and me to unlock our ultimate potential as humans and unleash the best, most authentic version of ourselves on the world at large. So thanks for sharing a little time with me today. Thank you for subscribing to the show on iTunes. Thank you for spreading the word, for subscribing to my newsletter, and also thank you for clicking on the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. So I'm really excited about today's show. This is a fantastic conversation with Andy Puttacombe. Uh, And it's a conversation that I think is really going to give you quite a few things to think about and hopefully inspire or make that compel you to get over yourself, to do what you know you should be doing, what you know will improve your life, but just can't seem to begin this pesky practice of mindfulness and meditation. So who is this guy? All right, well, prepare thyself. (laughs) Consider the Jamie Oliver of meditation by the New York Times and the international poster boy for the modern mindfulness movement. Andy is a meditation and mindfulness expert. He's an accomplished presenter and writer. He's written two books. The first is called Get Some Headspace and the other one's called The Headspace Diet. These books have been translated into a zillion languages and he is the voice of all things Headspace. What is Headspace? Well, Headspace is the award-winning digital health platform. It's a mobile app, it's a website, it's a blog, and it's a podcast also on which I recently guested that he co-founded that provides a wide range of super accessible, simple, secular guided meditation sessions. With over a million users, it really is a fantastic service. And you've probably heard me talk about it quite frequently on the podcast, on my blog, when I guest on other people's podcasts, I'm always suggesting that people check it out. Uh, And I'm doing that because I think it's a great place to begin the journey of learning more about mindfulness and meditation to really enter this world. And it's been very, very helpful to me personally. Uh, And just for the record, just so we're clear, I have zero business affiliation with this company whatsoever. I just love what they do and I'm happy to support what they're doing. And so it was really a thrill and a pleasure to be able to sit down with Andy. Not only that, uh, Andy has a really amazing personal story. Uh, In his early 20s, he made this unexpected decision to just drop out of university and instead travel to the Himalayas to study meditation. And this was a 10-year journey that took him all over the world, culminating with ordination as a Tibetan Buddhist monk in northern India. He essentially lived as a Buddhist monk for 10 years. 
amazing, right? But this is also very much kind of a postmodern Siddhartha story because he had this realization that this was not his place, that he needed to kind of come back to the Western world. And he made this transition to lay life in 2004, and that transition is no less extraordinary. He trained briefly at the Moscow State Circus. Can you believe that? That's amazing. And then he returned to London where he completed a degree in circus arts. I mean, who does that? With the Conservatoire of Dance and Drama, whilst drawing up the early plans for what would later become Headspace. This is a guy who's been featured widely in international press. He's appeared in Vogue, the New York Times, Financial Times, Entrepreneur, Men's Health, and Esquire, to name a few. He's also uh, someone who's made regular appearances on TV and online. He's been featured on the BBC, Dr. Oz, Netflix, and TED. In fact, his TED Talk is a must-watch. It's super entertaining, and it's got almost 5 million views. 5 million views on his TED Talk. I'll embed that TED Talk on uh, the episode page at my site, richroll.com. You guys all need to go and and check that out. Maybe do that before you even listen to the podcast or after. It's cool, whatever you want to do. In any event, he's an exceptional guy across the board. And on a personal level, it was really uh, inspiring to me because he's been someone who has been instrumental in my own journey and helping me better and more consistently embrace mindfulness practices into my own life. And this journey for me has really been nothing short of completely transformational. So this is really cool. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem 
a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful. And recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities, of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, waking up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. All right, you guys, let's expand our headspace with Andy Puttacombe, shall we? Should we do that? All right, let's do that. In the booth at Headspace <laughs> HQ, this is this is where the magic happens, right? Right here. That's what I'm told. I'm a little, I'm a little starstruck. You know, all of that, all of that information coming into my head every morning happens it's, it's right lot, in this a lot of hours. tiny room. A lot of hours in here. <laughs> I know. How many? I mean, how does that work? Like, are you yeah. in here every day, or do you have scheduled time once a week where you come in here? Not at the moment. So in the past, we've done somewhere. We reckon it's probably been about 700 hours total uh-huh. in the in the studio. Uh, a lot of that was done in the London office, actually, before we moved out right. to, to L.A. But I, I tend to kind of schedule in a week at a time. So I'll I'll spend like a week on a pack, on a 30-day pack. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm in here most days. And you come in. I mean, are are these like one takes? How many takes? Because I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, 
how much is this scripted or is he just so good at this? He just you know riffs what? it? None of it's scripted. Really? So wow. I go in um, and I usually try and do maybe something like kind of five five days um, in, in like one, one go. Uh-huh. And um, I have one line for each day. And it's just a, an idea or mm-hmm. a theme for that day um, that I've kind of, you know, worked out in advance. But other than that, it's not. And I, it's a funny one. I, I actually don't like to do any more than one take. So sometimes you'll hear me kind of tripping up over the words. And we could, if we wanted, kind of go back and do right. another take. But uh, the idea is that it's natural. Uh-huh. And um, so we don't, we kind of don't mess around with it once we've done it. Right. And you just do it, you do it in real time. So you do don't just like time. say it all and then space it out in the no, time. No. So I, I, I sit down and as far as I'm concerned, I'm doing the meditation with you right. at that time. Uh-huh. Yeah. I love it. That's pretty cool. That's and uh, I infer from social media, did you just get back from Necker Island? <laughs> What's going <laughs> I, I did. Hang I did. Sir Richard Branson, what's I, happening? I took one for the team. Um, oh, no tough. one else wanted to go. Right. Um, yeah, I was. I got invited down there to do um, to do a bit of work over the mm. weekend to, to lead a few meditations and that kind of thing and, uh, and got back. Was it yesterday, I think? It was pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, you were only there for like a couple of days based on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> what I could infer. I my could forensic o- analysis of your photos. I could only post so many tropical island uh-huh. sunsets in uh, 48 hours. No, I was there for, um, yeah, for, for two days. I think it was six plane journeys and something like two, four boats in mm-hmm. five days. It was a, a long way to go for a short amount of time. To lead, a, to lead some meditation. Yeah. Right? yeah. But amazing. Like. You know, it was the interesting thing in asking people to meditate there. It almost it felt criminal to ask them to even close their eyes. You know, mm-hmm. you look out over the ocean and nature does it for you. Mm-hmm. It's an yeah. amazing thing. If you can't uh, get some headspace there, where are you going to get it? Exactly. Right? Exactly. Well, you're a, uh, you know, I'm looking around your office space. You have all of these, you know, young, energetic you know, people <laughs> working here and you're expanding. They're doing construction. And yeah. there's, you know some magic happening here and, and what you built is really powerful and, and, and quite amazing. But, you know, your story is so fascinating because you're a most unlikely entrepreneur. I am. It's a complete accident. Yeah. Um, and I have to say it is a massive team. It's really important to say it's a massive team mm-hmm. effort. Um, I'm essentially the, the performing monkey in this circus and um, everyone else is working extremely hard and I just get to go out and talk about it. Well, you're sort of the the axle around which all of these spokes, you know, oh, emanate. That's, I would that's another way of looking. But I kind of look at yeah. you, and th- you know, I, I was trying to think as I was driving over here, like an appropriate analogy. But it's very much like this sort of postmodern Siddhartha story, or this kind of you know modern take on autobiography of a yogi, where you're taking these principles that date back millennia and trying yeah. to find a way to translate them to a modern audience so that they can not only understand what you're saying, but actually implement them into their lives to, you know, create sustainable long-term positive change. Yeah, I, I think that for me is the most important thing. You know, there's there's a whole world out there, isn't there, of, of books and, you know, in back in the 80s or CDs and now kind of podcasts and talking about this stuff. You know, discussing it and there's a lot of thinking about it, but there's very little kind of application of it. And mm-hmm. for me, with meditation, more than anything, you know, we we only it is only in the experience that we get to see the benefits. So 
finding a way to I see it in three separate kind of camps I see kind of awareness so understanding why we need to do it the importance of it providing a really compelling invitation to try it because until we try it we don't know it mm-hmm. and then engagement like how do we keep coming back day after day for the rest of our lives and it's only with kind of consistent practice again that we kind of really deepen the practice so at Headspace, the idea is to yeah, try and create some awareness and education around the importance of looking after the mind, to get people to come try it, and then to encourage people to keep trying it on a daily basis. Right. So there's this gap, however, between the education, the knowledge, the information, yeah. and even the encouragement and traversing that you know gap into actually implementation and, and action, right? And that's kind of where the magic starts. So yeah. you can get up and, and try to talk about how important this is to, you know, large groups, small groups, one-on-one yeah. for the rest of your life. Yeah. But, you know, how much power do you really have over whether somebody's going to take what you know, even if they walk away from that conversation intrigued and interested, yeah. you know, what is the what is the engagement rate with them actually doing it? And I think what you're working on here and what I think is really starting to click in is you really are bridging that gap. For some reason, maybe it's deep-rooted in, you know, something you're triggering in the human psyche. Mm-hmm. It's working. Like I, you know, just on a personal level, uh, you know, I've been playing around with meditation for, for years, the better part of 16 years, trying this, trying that, this technique, that technique. And I have fits and starts, and I could never create any kind of consistent momentum. And, you know, I started using Headspace not that long ago, you know, 60, 70 days ago or something like that. And I've really found myself doing it every day. I don't know why it's creating, (laughs) it's making me do it, but I will tell you, oh, I was going to show you on my phone, like I have a one thing I did do, though, that I found effective is I put Headspace down in the okay. dock on the uh, – nice. so, so I can't escape looking at it every time <laughs> I look at my phone. That's a good idea. I'll suggest that. Um, so I guess – I don't even know if I asked you a question. But the, I guess the question mm-hmm. is, like, you know, how do you break down that, that gap between information and action and try to bridge that? And what is Headspace doing differently than, than maybe other – your predecessors have? Yeah. It's a good question. Yeah. There's there's part of me that says I haven't got a clue, mm-hmm. um, and then there's there, there are things you know. So the first thing I'd say is authenticity. So this isn't that Rich and I kind of went away on a a weekend meditation retreat and kind of came out and thought, hey, let's set up a, a company. So this was as a result of of going away for a very long period of time and doing nothing but studying meditation, mm-hmm. and. I'm a big believer in lineage and tradition. doesn't matter whether it's meditation or if it's in learning to play the piano or surfing, whatever it is. If something gets passed down in a very personal way over, never mind decades, but if we start talking about hundreds of years or even millennia, like something really, there's like a refinement and development that takes place, which is really powerful, I think. Mm-hmm. So I learned from my teacher who learned from their teacher, and that goes back a, a long, long way. And, and I think a big part of this is a very kind of gradual approach, right? When you come to, the, come to the app, you learn a day, and you come back the next day, and you're building on the day before. So it's, it's this step-by-step learning kind of process. Mm-hmm. I think there's something very valuable in that. In the past, back in the 80s, you buy a meditation CD or something, and you just sit there and listen to the same thing every day. Mm-hmm. So there's no real kind of development of the practice. Right, it's quite right. kind of static in a way. So I think that's one thing. I think what Rich, the, the co-founder, 
um, and my very good friend has brought to this project is a, a degree of creativity, which has never really existed. Like, if you look back at meditation, it's fine for people who are interested in that kind of thing mm-hmm. and don't mind images of lotus leaves and people sitting cross-legged under a waterfall with a sunset in the background. But for most people... That's not really kind of their thing, you know, and it's it's another barrier. And Rich has this ability to create a whole kind of world, a visual world, which is immediately engaging, which is non-threatening and which is very approachable. Mm-hmm. So I think those things, authenticity, creativity, and I'm going to add in a third one, which is science, have all helped bridge that gap. So if you look at the science in the last 20 years, around meditation and mindfulness it's a it's astonishing you know like we in the past you simply there was no way of knowing what was happening to the brain so now we're not only talking about what happens to the mind but we're talking about the physiological impact on the brain itself and seeing that parts of the brain actually change not only in the amount of blood flow they get but they change in shape and size and strength depending on our meditation that's a it's an amazing thing and it's a really compelling again invitation to practice i think right i mean it's it's really having a moment right now there is a zeitgeist yeah. moment happening i mean you've devoted your life to this this is yeah. you know a long time coming but it's really a convergence of popular culture with with your interest and your expertise and your authenticity to get to this place where now science is interested and we're looking yeah. at neuroplasticity and i think yeah. you i read or heard you say that mentioned that you know there's maybe 30 or 50,000 or 3,000 to 3 to 5,000 peer reviewed studies over 5, on the impact now. of yeah. meditation yeah um, i mean that's crazy it's there huge that many it's, studies out there it's in, and it's happened so quickly like, I mean, the early studies kind of go back maybe 35 years, but really sort of the ones involving fMRI machines where they can actually see what's going on in the brain mm-hmm. during meditation. It's only in the last like 12 to 15 years. So it's really kind of recent. And But I do think that that's um, sped up kind of this acceptance of it. Yeah, know? well, it makes it palatable. Like, oh, well, if that guy says yeah. so or, you know. Exactly. Or, you know, and even in the corporate partnerships that you guys, are, you know, have done with Virgin Atlantic, it sort of gives it this imprimatur of acceptability with yeah. the mainstream that allows people to, to you know, sort of embrace it a little more readily, I think. I think it just gives it that stamp of approval and people trust big brands like Virgin and mm. they get on the plane and, man, Virgin is saying it's okay. I'll give it a go. Right, right, right. Which and then really you nice. get to occasionally go to Necker Island. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there has to be an upside, right, <laughs> yeah, to sitting in this like, studio. you got to get something uh... <laughs> out of this, right? No, that's so funny. Well, I want to talk about your story. I know that you've you've told your story many, many times, but hopefully you'll indulge me a little bit because it's so interesting and, and so unique, this this path to where you are right now. I'm. I'm. If it's of interest, oh, it's to, certainly to, of interest. I'm, I'm happy to. You're always deflating or deflecting, well, deflecting this. But I think. I think you. You maybe because you've told it so many times. But I think for the average person to, to you know, even have the opportunity to yeah. some to speak to somebody who's had this kind of unique experience that you've had, it's 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 really fascinating. I genuinely believe. You know, I'm not. This isn't deflection, uh, and I will come on to the yeah. story. I, I genuinely believe we all we all have a story to tell you know if it it doesn't sound extraordinary to ourselves because we've lived it and so we're used to it mm-hmm. and so it doesn't kind of sound unusual in any way um and that's what i i love about you know and speak to other people like everyone has a story and it even if people have stayed in one place their entire life 
you know, being around the same people, there is an incredible story to tell. Um, and mine just happens to have been, you know, I guess it's quite varied um, and it's been in a number of different places. But it starts with your your mom being interested it, in meditation. It does. And, and it does. encouraging you as a young lad. It actually, <laughs> yeah, it actually starts with my with my folks getting divorced, going through quite mm. a difficult period of time. My mom looking for a way to cope, and she decided to sign up for a, a course in in meditation. Uh, it was actually TM back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, my sister was going along, and I was a bit put out that I hadn't been invited. I said, "Can I come along too?" And that was the beginning of it. And the very first time, I remember, well, you know, the very first time, I don't think I'd ever experienced a quiet mind before then. I don't think I'd, you know, even as a kid, I had quite a busy mind. I was very active. I don't remember kind of experiencing that kind mm-hmm. of silence before. And it left a real, a real mark. From that one experience, or were you going back? I mean, did this become a practice? Yeah, I went, I went so it was a course. I think, I forget, it was like about three months or something uh-huh. like that, the course, and we'd go back each week. I have to say, and this is very typical in meditation, I went along and I had such an amazing kind of first experience that I went back the next week assuming that it would happen again and almost chasing the experience. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it didn't happen because I was thinking too much about trying to recreate the experience rather mm-hmm. than allowing the experience to happen. So it took a little while to kind of find find the sweet spot there. But I I kind of played around with it on and off for a good few years, I would say, between like 10 and 13, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you had this sort of uh, rapid-fire series of, of kind of unfortunate occurrences that, that kind of changed the trajectory yeah. of where you were headed. So it was actually quite a bit later. It was probably like more when I was like 18 or something, 18, 19. And... Um, yeah, I would I would definitely attribute part of why I went away to to this. And I was talking to a, a friend actually who was who was there at the time just earlier today. Um, and we were just it was Christmas Eve. Um, we were stood outside of a an old rugby club where we used to kind of play, and um, we'd had a party there that night, and everyone had had a few drinks, and we we're just standing on the sidewalk, and a drunk driver came down the hill. Uh, at the time, myself and two friends just stepped away from the group um, just to mm. relieve ourselves against the wall. And the car, the guy, uh, he was a drunk driver, he lost control and just plowed into the group, mm. killing two people and putting, I don't know, I think like 12 people in, in intensive care. Mm-hmm. And it was heavy, you know. Yeah, like, that's, that's intense. Um, and the, you know... In terms of the the imprints it leaves on the memory, kind of the the not only the sight of it but the sound of it. It was it's almost like it like camera like frames of of a video or something kind mm. of shot. Everything is just you know time is a very malleable thing, and in that moment everything was seen and heard like in such a kind of shocking way that everyone dealt with it. I guess in in different ways and and for me I. I just never really felt like I processed that, so I just mm-hmm. carried it around with me instead for a number of years mm-hmm. until it kind of bubbled to the to the surface, wanting to be wanting to be dealt with, dealt with in, the, <laughs> in, a, in a different way. Yeah. yeah, and then you had your stepsister was hit was also was hit yeah right after about three months later. Um, something like that. She was uh, a, a van. Yeah, she was out cycling, and a van driver fell asleep at the wheel and uh, and very. Sadly, she she died. 
Right. So you're dealing with like some compounded, you know, heavy grief. Yeah, it was, and all mixed in with that still kind of growing up, trying to find kind of place in right. life and be accepted by peers and all the usual kind of stuff. And Young man, a lot of hormones. and Yeah, <laughs> all that stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. And 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 you're starting university, yes. Nonetheless, and you're studying sports science. That's right. Yeah, I went. Right. Um, I did. I took a few years away. Uh, in retrospect, I see it was not only through a sense of adventure; it was probably also trying to get away a little bit. I went and worked a ski season in the mm. in the Alps. Did a summer season in Ibiza. I came over here and worked in America a little bit. Doing some summer camps. Oh, stuff. this is all before. This university. is all before university. So you have this wanderlust. This is already. For sure. imp- right. Oh, yeah, from a very very early age uh, and then I went back to the UK and um, started a sports science degree and I was about I finished the first year I was just into my second year when I had this moment of why am I doing this mm-hmm. you know I'm not happy you know it was it's a really funny thing because I was having a really good time like student life is fun like it's a good time and we were going out and we we're doing all the things you do when you're a student mm-hmm but it wasn't it wasn't happiness at a deep level there was no kind of sense of fulfillment it was just kind of temporary sort of fun you know so you wake up the next morning and if you're lucky you can remember what happened the night before but you're back where you were before you know which is wow back here again and for me that was something that was kind of unsustainable but that's a pretty heavy level of maturity to have at that age to be so introspective. I mean, you know, sort of the typical, you know, <laughs> like like looking back, I, I you know, I could have that same dawning realization about my experience, but I certainly wasn't about to, you know, sort of wrestle with that at that yeah. time. So what do you think <laughs> it was about you that that you yeah. were really the one who actually was willing to look at it and actually take, you know, a contrary action? Well, rarely in life have I been accused of being mature, but I'll, <laughs> but I'll take it. But that, um, I mean, that is pretty, you know, mature. Yeah, I, I think that I, I do think I grew up in an environment where that wasn't considered kind of alien. Um, you know, mum was, she was trained as a, as a counsellor, as a hypnotherapist. You got a hippie mom. You know, a little bit, yeah. you know, and she was, and, you know, and we went and kind of, you know, we went along to meditation classes and all that sort of stuff. I, I think it was there in the background. So in that sense, there was permission, even if it wasn't permission from my peers who thought I was completely mad. Mm-hmm. Um, there was at least some permission from my family that this was an okay kind of thing to do. And at that particular time, I was going out with... Uh, a lovely girl at, um, at university who was heavily into Buddhism had just been telling me all about kind of, you know, this, these monks and nuns in the Himalayas. And and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, that's a, that's a really good idea. Mm-hmm. And it was just something kind of happened. Some, it was really like it was one afternoon, just something, I say something snapped, but something changed. And it changed with such a degree of clarity uncertainty that I just knew, man. Mm-hmm. I quit college that afternoon mm-hmm. and left. That's amazing. 
That's uh, do you know? You probably do you know Sam Harris? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what Sam Harris did, kind of. I okay. mean, when he was a freshman, and he we were class. I didn't know him, but we yeah. were in the same class at, at in college, and he took off after freshman year on a similar sort of search. And you know, now look at the two of you being yeah. sort of leading <laughs> minds in this arena. Yeah, I don't know Sam personally. Uh, I know of him and I know his story, and yeah, I knew a lot of a lot right. of similarities. So, so you had uh, you had East. You had to India. I did. Well, you were you went to a bunch of places. I Burma, did. Uh, yeah, Myanmar. I was actually going to fly. The, the original plan was to to go to Thailand and just straight to a particular monastery that I I knew of there, and um, and then I met someone who kind of said, "Oh yeah, my friends just come back from this place in northern India. The Dalai Lama lives there. It's mm-hmm. an amazing place." And I thought, "Great, sounds like a good place to start." So I I went there first. Dharmasala. Yeah, Dharmasala. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And it's. These days, it's quite kind of touristy. Um, back then, it was a little less so, I would say. And I went there thinking, okay, well, I'll find a, a Tibetan monastery. And I found the whole Tibetan thing completely overwhelming. It's it's so rich. You know, there's there's so much stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And visually, rituals. And at the time, I, I just didn't understand it. And I I was so complicated in my own mind. I was just really... Uh, uh, just wanted simplicity you know whether it's like that idea of zen you know where you just sit there and there's nothing mm-hmm. there's nothing or whether you know the more traditional types of um buddhism in in asia so i i ended up starting there then i, I did probably i studied about five years in the burmese school mm-hmm. um, not just in burma uh, but with a teacher in australia as well and back in the uk um and i would say it's a, the burmese tradition is it's, it's quite strict um, but it's a really good foundation. Strict in terms of the practice and the sort of ascetic lifestyle? Yeah, or, every, or... everything. <laughs> <laughs> everything. Yeah. I, I actually found it, I found it quite challenging, you know. It's, there, was, there was, I guess, the, the adventurous part of me that had this idea of what it was, and I, I really, you know, I loved the idea of it. But being in it, wow, it's quite hard. Is that when you're practicing to be ordained, or once you? Yeah, are ordained? so that was when I was uh, a lay person and a, as a novice monk. So you're in. I see. And so, what you know, what's a day in the life like that? So it varies. Um, as a lay person, it's a lot more varied, um, and you might not even be in the monastery. In the monastery, as a novice monk, it's it's quite um, it's quite full on. I'd say mm-hmm. so. Typically, in Burma itself, if you're in in retreat. Um, the day starts at about 2.30. Um, the meditation begins at 3. And in the particular one that I trained in, it was, uh, it was about 18 hours a day. So nine hours sitting, nine hours walking, one hour food, uh, breakfast, 5 o'clock in the morning, one hour food, mm. lunch at 11 in the morning, uh, and then about three and a half hours for sleep. And that was it. Wow. Um, nine hours of sitting and nine, nine hours, hours of, walking. of walking meditation. So there's one big room. So very different from the Tibetan. So in the Burmese retreats, um, there's one big room and everybody practices together. And you all sit down one side of the, the temple um, and under little mosquito nets. And uh, you, you do like your, your hour. The gong goes. The mosquito nets come up. And you then walk just backwards and forwards very slowly doing walking meditation for an hour. Mm. And then the gong goes again. You sit down. 
So you're alternating hour, hour, hour. Exactly. Whereas in the the Tibetan retreats, the the, the longer term retreats, it's maybe a little less, more like kind of 16 hours, but it might be sort of like four blocks of four hours throughout mm-hmm. the day, just sitting and and no walking. And no sort of like acclimation period. You just you go from sort of yeah you know, British schoolboy to 16, 18 hours well, a day. Or I yeah, and mm-hmm. and and I I kind of um, I think that was part of the challenge. Like it's it's a bit kind of all or nothing, just kind of jumping in at the deep end. And mm-hmm. and when I look back now, I would you know often now people will write in and ask me about it. They're keen to go off and and I advise people in a very different in a very different way. I'm like, look, mm-hmm. start off with start off with a weekend retreat, then try a week. If you're up for it, go away and do a month. If after a month or three months you feel like that's the the way to go, great, jump in. But I wouldn't kind of jump straight in at the deep end. Right. And so how long were you doing, were you adhering to this rigorous of a... So again, that that's kind of retreat. So living in the monastery is different from retreat. Living in a monastery, you might do six to eight hours of meditation a day. And then alongside that, you're doing cooking and cleaning and, and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And then you'll go into retreat for a certain amount of time. The The longest retreat that, that I did was, uh, was a year. Um, and you do that all day, every day for... Mm-hmm. For a year, and is it silent retreat? Uh, that particular one, that particular one wasn't. Um, I would say about five to six months of it was in silence. Right. So depending on the techniques you're doing at the time, you might be in silence or or not. Um, but even when you're not silent, it's not. Like there's loads of spare time to just hang out and chat about yeah. the latest. And what are you going to talk about? <laughs> well, the, the latest movie that you yeah, didn't see? <laughs> like, are you writing letters back to your friends in, in England? Like, how are they processing what you're doing? I mean, it sounds like your mom's all on board, but what about the rest of your family and your friends? Yeah. I mean, do they think you've gone off the deep end or are they, you know, sort of, do they have your back? Or are they encouraging you? <laughs> I think mum was on board until it suddenly... Uh, dawned on her that she may not have any grandchildren from me. Um, <laughs> yeah. then she we was, didn't even talk about the celebration. Then she was, the then she was less on board. Um, my dad was kind of getting on board. It took him a little longer, I would say. To, to He was supportive always, but it took him a lot longer to, to get on board. My friends, I think they were just genuinely bemused mm-hmm. because they'd been going out drinking with this guy like, <laughs> <laughs> like a few yeah. months earlier. And they're like, what is he doing? I think... My um my lecturer at college probably summed it up better. He was when I went and told him, he was like, Yeah, you should just go and get some Prozac from from the doctor. I think there was that kind of response like, Oh, he's just he's having a breakdown, like mm-hmm. he's lost it. Um let's let's just let him go and do it, sort of thing. Right. But at some point <laughs> there you know, maybe there's a little bit graver concern, like, you know, we better go get him because he might not come back. Yeah, I they never sent out any kind of intervention parties <laughs> or, or anything like that. Yeah. Maybe they talked about it and couldn't uh-huh. afford it. I don't know. Um but I have to say my my friends, I was writing back eh, not loads from the monastery, but the the times in between different monasteries, I, I definitely kept in touch. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say, my friends were incredibly supportive. And the longer the journey went along, the more supportive they mm, became. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So how long does it take for you to get officially ordained? So probably that was probably about five, maybe even six years into that journey to take full ordination in, in the Tibetan tradition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and once you're ordained, how does that... Does your lifestyle change or it's just what, it, what happens? It now? does change. It feels 
although it's all about impermanence, there's a greater feeling of permanence in the sense that, you know, you've taken a commitment and it's not necessarily for life. Um, you can take a, in the Tibetan tradition, typically you'll go along and they'll say, okay, do you want to take a, a commitment for three years, for five years or life? And so you can do three years and at the end of the three years, mm. if you're like, mm, I'd like to carry on, then you might do five years. So there's no kind of feeling of regret when you walk away. It's mm. kind of you've completed your period of training. So, uh, yeah, I found it. I found it a real sense of relief, actually, making that commitment. There was no uncertainty. You know, often when you're not sure which way to go in life, mm. like once you've made the decision, there's a sense of relief that comes mm. with that. And I just felt I felt really content and kind of happy in my direction in right. life. And that was uh, you, the three. You made a three-year commitment or the five-year? Yeah. So I made um, well. I went and did first. I went and did a year in retreat, um, and then I did uh, three. I did three years. Got you. And yeah. is, at this point, are you in Moscow already, or how how do you find your Where way there? So I took um, I took <laughs> ord- ordination in northern India, but then I, yeah, I went and spent some mm-hmm. time in Moscow. So Moscow. Um, but in, hold on a second. So, yeah. <laughs> sorry. In northern India, I mean, were you yeah. in the Himalayas? Yeah. Like, are you in the caves and having that kind of, you know, sort of experience that you hear about? Yeah, I wasn't in, in any cave. Um, I was lucky. There was a very nice Tibetan Buddhist monastery there, um, which was incredible. It's not, I wouldn't say it's set up for Westerners, but it's definitely a lot easier for, mm-hmm. for Westerners to be there. And there's there's not too much cave dwelling that goes on these days. Yeah, I mean, you hear these... This is an interesting question. I mean, you hear these sort of mythic stories of these yeah. these legendary sadhus who are in meditation for just incredibly long, protracted periods yeah. of time where they're either not eating or they're being tended to by, yeah. you know, sort of people. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, or, or once they pass and leave their body, their bodies remain preserved. And, you yeah. know, I'm always trying to figure out the demarcation line between sort of truth and exaggeration here. Yeah. And as someone who's lived there, I mean, what yeah. is your perspective on that? Y- it is a it's a really tricky one I, I would say the I think there's a lot we don't understand about the mind and I think a monastery is an incredible environment in which to go and understand more about the mind I think there are there are definitely levels of kind of uh, of understanding of consciousness whatever you want to call it and I would say it's it's nothing kind of terribly mystical about it I, just increasingly the more time we spend in the present not only to the more calm do we feel, but the greater clarity there is, the greater the insight into the mind is. And with insight comes a different perspective and a different experience of life. As to some of those stories, um, I've never witnessed uh, anyone having kind of passed on and their body being, I've certainly heard plenty of stories like that. Mm. All I would say is, I met people there who had spent their entire life in meditation and I really, you know, like their entire life and they were extraordinary on every single level. Um, I would be no more impressed were they able to do that after they died than if they were simply what they were when they were alive. Mm -hmm. I can remember walking into, there's one particular kind of, it's kind of like the the SAS of of meditators, you know, the SEALs. SEAL Team SEALs. Exactly. (laughs) And they're they're taken out, they're chosen at a very early age, um, having a particular aptitude for meditation. And they're taken away, like, of their own choice, you know, but they're taken away from the monastery, away from the retreats. They live up in the mountains and they spend 
their life dedicating it to meditation. And I went out of very unusual I had the very good fortune to go and meet the the man who kind of runs this this school up in the mountains and it was just extraordinary like there was someone there right I mean he was there he was sat on the on the kind of couch as we went in the room Mm -hmm. but it was as though no one was there It, it was it was as though the entire room was just pure kind of compassion or love or space whatever you want to call it it kind of doesn't matter there was something otherworldly about it it was quite extraordinary so and i'm a very down-to-earth bloke um i'm not big on kind of mystical kind of stuff and hopefully that comes through in in headspace as a journey um but i have to say kind of some of the people i met there were were quite extraordinary and i've never met anyone like it in the west mm-hmm. yeah i mean i can imagine i think that <clears throat> yeah everything that you do is so grounded and relatable yeah that maybe there's a reticence to even go there i just don't <laughs> yeah I know. but uh but yeah. you know i would imagine that that surrounding yourself with that level of consciousness would make you start to uh kind of embrace a broader concept of our limited perspective of reality yeah. and how that relates to our abilities and our perceptions and all of that. I, I think what I saw in those teachers was a willingness to let go of, of self, you mm-hmm. know. So they, they just weren't caught up in their own stuff, which meant there was just space for others. Mm-hmm. And that space, well, again, you can call it empathy, you can call it compassion, doesn't really matter what we call it, but they were just always present for others. And in doing that, they seem to always bring happiness and benefit to those around them. It was an extraordinary thing. Right. That's very cool. Yeah. All right. So Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> Moscow, next on the map. Yes. Yeah, Moscow came about. There was one particular teacher who fascinated me. He was uh, he was an Irishman who had spent 12 years in cloistered retreat. So cloistered, no contact mm. outside. And he'd done it at a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in Scotland. And I was just fascinated by his his journey and I think very inspired by his journey. And it was a journey that I wanted to kind of recreate, I suppose. And I heard that he was living in Moscow and teaching in Moscow. And so I moved to Moscow. It was really just seeking this guy out. Yeah, Mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, to to get some teachings from him. And in the end, we, we ended up. Yeah, I stayed in Moscow, and then we went together to India, and I took ordination as a as a monk there, and then eventually kind of went back to Moscow and taught in the the meditation center in in Moscow. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. And what was that like living the life? Of, I mean, it's a juxtaposition of so many bizarre <laughs> things at once, you know, like just a monk yeah. alone, no matter where, but then a monk in Moscow, you know, I that, can't imagine. Yeah. That was, 
even now when I look back, I, I, there's a part of me that goes, what were you doing? <laughs> like, seriously. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I can remember, regu- it was a time, you know, Moscow's always a challenging place. I have to say I love it as a city. It's, it still kind of feels like home to me now. But I can remember walking down the street, I'd regularly get stopped by the police. Um, they're not big fans of religious expression in, mm. in Russia. And, uh, and they'd be asking for papers and things. I can remember walking through the metro station one day and a guy just running, charging at me and just rugby tackling me. Um, he thought it was a, I was a Harry Krishna. And he right, so, to... so break, break down the, uh, the attire, though. Are you wearing like yeah, a so red skirt? And exactly. Like, think yeah. think the, the Dalai Lama kind of type outfit, so a maroon kind of. And so essentially, for people, for people who aren't familiar with that, it's a bold-headed guy in a purple skirt. Like, you know, for people walking up and down the streets in Moscow, that's what they saw. They right. just saw a bold-headed guy in a purple skirt. And it was alien. And alien things tend to kind of freak us out a bit. It's so funny looking at you now because you have your very <laughs> trendy trainers on and you're very dapper and bespoke well, and all of these things. So like that, you know, the except for the bald head, that, yeah. you know, then I can see the <laughs> the trappings of the uh, the attire. Yeah. But that's interesting. So how long were you in Moscow then? Um, so I guess you were there twice. but the Yeah, all together. Right? Yeah, I mean, I stayed there after then for probably about another two and a half years, something mm-hmm. like that. But is that where you kind of the the end of your tenure yeah. as a monk sort of exactly to wind down? And I was I was undecided, you know. I was I was genuinely not sure whether I was gonna keep doing what I was doing or whether I was gonna gonna change. And I actually went to see one of my teachers in in India, and it was someone I had a huge amount of trust in. And I actually handed over the responsibility of the decision to him, mm-hmm. and I said, "Look, if you think I should do this for life." I'll do it for life. If you don't, I won't. And he said, well... That's a, that's, that's a pretty big decision to suddenly sort of deputize somebody else. Yeah. On your behalf. <laughs> he, Please, here, you can decide what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Some may say that was just avoiding the responsibility of making the decision. I, it's very hard to describe, but if, if you're in that practice every single day and you have a particular teacher and a feeling of devotion or whatever, you know, towards that person... I genuinely believe that he knew better than I did in that mm. in that moment. So I trusted him and his advice was to maybe not take life ordination just yet. And I went back to Moscow and I was coming to the end of my sort of commitment there. And uh, there were a number of people coming along to the, the meditation center. And a lot of them were lay people. Some of them were expats. Some of them were Russian. And increasingly, I just, I saw that the way I was living my life was so often an obstacle in kind of presenting those teachings that I was trying to present. People would say, oh, it's easy for you. You're a monk, you know, wait until you've got a wife and screaming kids at home or, uh, you know, it's easy. You don't have any responsibilities. You don't have anything to kind of worry about. Or it might be the dress, you know, and it's like, yeah. Like there are some people who find that a bit challenging to mm-hmm. accept someone dressed like that or the fact that I smelled of incense, whatever it might be. You know, there are a number of potential obstacles. And the more I thought about it, the more I kind of thought, yeah, you know, maybe, just maybe if it was taken out of this setting, this could be so much more accessible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that clearly this is your dharma, you know. It, yeah. It, it's... it's sort of ordained that you're you're meant to be doing what you're doing but but I wouldn't say that that you're the first person who's 
come up with this idea of trying to translate no. these concepts for a mainstream society. So, yeah. you know, in that regard, like, how do you conceptualize what has made what you're doing successful? And if somebody were to ask me my opinion of that for you, yeah. I mean, I would say <laughs> that you're an extraordinary communicator. Like, you have a you have an, a, an ability and agility and adeptness to be able to convey these principles, distill them down to their their very core essence in a way that's sort of palatable. Not palatable is the wrong word, but, you know, understandable and embraceable, I suppose, by anybody. Well, that's really nice to hear and, and thank you. I mean, I, I, I genuinely, I, I can't, I, I don't know is the, is the truth, mm-hmm. you know. I, I think there is something in the experience, you know, I, People have asked me to look at other people's kind of, you know, apps and material and things and say, you know, kind of what do you think? And everything, you know, we all, like different things appeal to different people. But for me personally, I I believe it's the authenticity of the experience. I couldn't do what I'm doing unless I had done what I've done. Right, in this sort of Malcolm Gladwell-esque, you know, 10,000 hours, you've you've trumped that and then some with the amount of hours that you've put into this. So you're speaking not only from direct experience, but like, you know, just a vast amount of that. Yeah, I I think there's something in that journey, almost kind of cyclical, you know. It starts off very simple. It gets quite kind of complicated at some stage. And then it comes back around to being very simple again. But there is an experience, and without that experience and without having kind of walked that, it's very difficult to make it feel and sound mm-hmm. simple again. So when I read books, sometimes it, it just feels so kind of complicated and unnecessarily complicated because mm-hmm. we are only talking about the present moment and there is nothing complicated about the present moment. But finding a way to approach that and talk about that, I think, yeah, I, I just think that comes about from experience, right? And so, and so, you you return to the UK from Moscow and intent upon teaching. Certainly, you know, at first, initially one on one. Is that? It well, is. We we skipped over the whole circus. It was thing. yeah. There was the, <laughs> part of every monk's journey is the circus thing, right? <laughs> right. Um, there was a bit of a segue, and it may sound really random, and it may sound completely unrelated. Uh, but it has become an integral part of what I'm doing now. So I was in Moscow. I had six months left to run of my time in Moscow, but I wasn't a monk. As a monk, you can't do kind of physical exercise. You can't go and play games and things. And yet before I was a monk, I competed as a gymnast and I was a very kind of active person. And a guy in Moscow I knew was going along to Moscow State Circus and doing a, a degree in, in circus arts. And he said, look, why don't you come along with me, you know? And so I went along and I was just hooked, you know. I mm. absolutely loved it. I'd been very quiet and very, for such a long period of time, very introverted. And all of a sudden there was an opportunity to express something physically again. And as a monk, I had I had nothing. I'd given everything away. Even my clothes I'd given away. So I was thinking, like, okay, how am I going to go back to England and start this thing that I want to do? Like, where am I going to live? How am I going to pay for it? Mm-hmm. And someone mentioned to me that you could go back to in London, There was you could do a degree in circus arts. And as I'd be classed as a mature student, I'd get a grant, I'd get a loan from the government. I thought, this ticks all the boxes. You know, I can, I can go and do something that makes me feel a bit more kind of worldly again. 
I can find a way to express this stuff. And at the same time, on a very practical level, I could uh, afford to go back to England and, and live there. Right. And w- did the circus art thing, though, kind of began in was there was that was sort of swirling about you in Moscow. In Moscow, right? yeah. That's kind of a big thing there, isn't it's it? It's massive. So right. I probably spent about six months having one to one classes at Moscow State Circus mm. and then went and did a, a degree in London. Uh huh. And yeah. then, and your friends are now saying what? Like, they're like, yeah. well, he came back. <laughs> yeah. But- <laughs> I think my my poor parents like they just got they just started to accept the fact that okay he's chosen this path in life they they, they were suddenly starting to feel kind of proud and telling their friends yet yeah, this is what and then it was like oh no he's 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 now a clown he's really in London lost the thread you know yeah. so there was definitely my my friends just laughed about it by that stage I think they were just like oh, he, that's just his life you know right, they right, right. they didn't think much about it. And so you're learning to, you know, juggle and tightrope walk and yeah. and and, and trapeze, uh, trapeze the whole all that stuff. That's so everything cool. you can just swinging around like a monkey uh, for nine hours a day, five days a week. Right. And this yeah. is kind of like where you go if you want to be in Cirque du Soleil or in yeah. the, circ- the traditional circus, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, it was not so much traditional. It was a bit more contemporary. So the emphasis was on physical theater. So a lot of mm. dance and a lot of theater. And for me, this is where it becomes relevant. If I'd have gone straight from the monastery, there is no way in the world that I would feel comfortable standing up in front of big audiences and, you know, doing what we do. In the circus, it was amazing because you had to get up on the stage and they just say, okay, make us laugh. No material. They can't tell any jokes. Just physical. Just make us laugh. And often it wouldn't work. Sometimes it would, and that feeling's amazing when it does, but often it wouldn't work. And it'd just be like, okay, go. Until it kind of got to a point where you're no longer afraid to fail. And that's a, re- again, that's a, re- mm. like, that's a really liberating place to be, to be able to go out there and do what you need to do in front of other people, but no longer be constrained by fear. Instead, just doing what you do because you're doing what you're doing and being okay with that. Mm-hmm. And I've I have found that just an incredibly useful thing in mm-hmm. in what we do at well, this space. plays into my great communicator theory. You know, I think when you're sure you know, when, if you watch your TED talk or any of your talks, it's the the comfort level that you have is you know, and I enjoy noticeable. It. Yeah, and I yeah. really enjoy it. You know, I, I I really enjoy the the conversation. What's also interesting is that it's it's this juxtaposition of the interior and the exterior because you had this life that was so focused on the interior for yeah. so long and then you step into this very physical world to kind yeah. of and there's a I would imagine that in the sort of looking in the rear view mirror that that was the yeah. counterbalance in this yeah. yin yang kind of dance absolutely that yeah. makes you a more well formed person I would imagine to be able yeah. to kind of be in the world I, I really I, I really needed something to kind of you know, mm-hmm. to make me feel more grounded and to find a sense of humor again. Like, I wouldn't say I lost it in the monastery, but there's not a lot of fooling around <laughs> laughing. You know? there's, there's not. <laughs> I wish there was more, but um, there was a little was bit. was pretty funny. I mean, was <laughs> there was some. There was some, but, you know, I, it, it did. It just balanced everything out. And while I was there studying, I used to get up about 4, 4.30 every morning and I would write, and so I would you slept in. 
because this is you're getting to sleep, but you get two extra hours of sleep. It's just it's like a lying. It's yeah, like a lie. Yeah. You're right. You're right. But I was writing content, and I was writing the content which is now Headspace. Mm. You know, so weekends, mornings, evenings, I would just be be writing. And so there was never an idea that you were going to try to be a professional circus performer. This was some, just something no. that was interesting to you, but the intention was always to teach these principles that you had learned. Absolutely. I, I think there was a time, you know, maybe like a year in where I was just enjoying it so much. You know, I kind of mm-hmm. thought, mm, actually, I suppose a little bit of work kind of wouldn't be a bad thing. But right. it, it was never, I was far too old to be a, you know, I was at this at this stage, I was 32 when I started the, the degree. They even made me sign a special form to say, look, I'm probably going to get injured. If I do, it's not your fault. Uh-huh. The rest of the kids were like, they were 18 years old, you know. <laughs> what is the uh, application process? Do you have to go in and perform? You do. You, oh, you um, do. But I was in Moscow, so they let me do a, a video mm. audition. So I had some friends in Moscow with a video, and we... So you're juggling while, like, walking on a bouncing ball or something like that? That kind of thing. Yeah. That kind of thing. Right. Very interesting. <laughs> All right, so so hmm. you're beginning to teach, yeah. and my understanding is that it's sort of something that goes from the one-on-one to <laughs> small groups to larger groups, yeah. and ultimately to kind of through your partner, Rich, yeah. uh, beginning to you know embrace the idea of using the web to kind of scale what you're doing. Yeah, so I was actually doing one-to-one in a clinic. So it was a mainstream kind of clinic where people would go if they were struggling with sleeping or high blood pressure or anxiety, and often it would be alongside traditional kind of medical treatment. Um, sometimes people self-referred and would come along. And and I met Rich. Rich was just burnt out from working in advertising, just completely burnt out and wanted to learn how to meditate. And at the time, I knew I wanted to do something more than one-to-one, but I didn't know how to do it so we did a skill swap and rich would come along for an hour at the clinic we'd do a session and then we'd pop across the road to the coffee shop and he'd give me marketing 101 and after meeting up over a period of about three or four months we both knew that there was there was something there and he was really excited about the opportunity i was and so we started to talk about okay what does it look like you know we spent probably about a year working on just the brand. Mm. So what what does a brand do? What does it feel like? Mm-hmm. How does it talk? Because brands haven't really existed in meditation before. Mm-hmm. And your idea was, well, we must have this orange ball. That was the main idea. I think that was the <laughs> that was the principle. This is what you're bringing to the equation. <laughs> Actually, that would make more sense than our original idea was this. Our brief for it was, how do we create something that we could talk about to our mates in the pub without them laughing about it? Now, that was the brief for Headspace. Mm-hmm. And it, maybe there's still a little bit of that in there now as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where does the orange ball come from? Is that from the juggling? Yeah, it should be, right? Because that was a complete coincidence, I think. The, the Originally, I don't know if you saw the old logo. It was actually no, a person sitting on a chair. And it was just how like a feeling of Headspace. So it was the, the ball was actually their head and it was sitting on top of the body. Mm-hmm. And we had about four different colors for it. And eventually, as usually it's happens, it just gets down. distilled and simplified. And yeah, and it became just the orange dot. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's you know, I think that, that back to this idea of kind of the postmodern autobiography of a yogi, you know, you look at Yogananda's life and he emigrates to the United States with this idea of trying to, you know, translate these principles of yoga and teach them to 
a Western audience. And mm-hmm. so what does he do? Well, he creates a bit of a following and then he starts to construct these edifices, these <laughs> ashrams, these giant they're they're beautiful, you know. In some of the best surf spots in the world. Exactly. Swamis and Encinitas. Exactly. That's why it's called Swamis. Seriously. If, if he hadn't beautiful. built on there, we, there might be a headspace construction <laughs> going on down there right. <laughs> yeah, <now>. right. <laughs> and of course the beautiful one in, in the Palisades, yeah. which are, are wonderful, but but in 2015, uh, that's kind of an outdated modality. So it's sort yeah. of, you know, what was once the ashram is now the app because yeah. the app is the forum around which groups can congregate. Yeah. And that can be done, you know, liberated from geography. So, yeah. you know, the app is your ashram, really. Yeah, and I mean to take not to use that term because I know that you don't want you know you're trying to (laughs) you know avoid that kind of thing. But you know, I think it's an it's an apt analogy. I think for most people, realistically, given the amount of commitments and responsibilities they have in their life, it's highly unusual to be able to kind of disappear off to some mountaintop and learn meditation. Mm -hmm. And there's no need to like that is the I, w- I kind of would never have believed that before I went. But but genuinely, like, the present moment is with us wherever we are in the world. We don't need to go to the Himalayas to experience the present moment. So if there is a way of bringing those teachings from the Himalayas and kind of making them accessible to somebody when they, I don't know, they're sitting in the car park at work before they go in in the morning or they're sitting on the train going into mm-hmm. work in the morning or they're at home after the kids have just gone to sleep for their morning nap, whatever it might be, then I, it just seems like such a an incredible, precious opportunity. You know, people often say there's a paradox, you know, like, what, meditation on a phone? Like, does, does that make sense? And absolutely it makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where people are right now. Mm-hmm. So that's the place to kind of meet them, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there is there is that sort of inherent irony because it's yeah. about, like, getting off your phone. But, you yeah. know, it's using your phone to be more mindful about your use of the phone, I suppose. I mean, it's just a tool, you know, whether you're using yeah. it for, for, to, for self-improvement or otherwise. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I, but it's this idea in the same way that 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 your logo was distilled down from mm. you know a head with a you know with a with a you know <laughs> balloon on it or whatever getting distilled down just yeah. to the circle. It's this distillation of these principles and these teachings down to their very you know sort of yeah. core essence, yeah. um, and then trying to relate those uh, you know to a Western audience. Is there? Sort of a uh, what is the what is the reception in a more traditional like what are your fellow monks or people that know what you're doing? I mean, do they say, "Oh, you're you're <laughs> you're bastardizing this"? I mean, when authenticity yeah. is everything, you know, what is is there is there some level of like you know de minimis sacrifice that takes place by not doing it the way that you yeah. were actually taught? That that is the risk, I think, mm-hmm. and. And I would say that's what's kind of kept us honest in a way, kind of recognizing that there is that risk and working really hard to maintain that authenticity. When I first set about doing it, I would say the 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 fear level was quite high in that community of, oh, my God, what's he doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely when Rich and I started, all the all the, the stuff we would get like negative stuff would always be from people in the Buddhist community. Always. Even when we just ran events in London, it's like, how dare you charge people to come to an event? Not recognizing that actually, if you go to any Buddhist center anywhere these days, they charge you. They have to, because otherwise they can't afford to keep the place open. 
Um, so we, you know, definitely there was some kind of concern, and it's changed over the years. And I have to say, you know, for me, that's a really personally, that's a really important thing um, to have the support of my teachers. That's a really important thing. And I've chatted to a couple of people recently. There was a, a researcher we were talking to, and he said that a friend of his who's been, he was a monk and he'd been meditating for about 30 years, runs a meditation center. And now whenever anyone goes there, he gets them away from the, the weekly session, he gets them to use Headspace. Mm. Somebody came back from Nepal and they'd gone to a monastery where a lot of Westerns go to. And when they go there, before they do any kind of the longer meditations, they're advised to use Headspace. Mm. So I don't know if that kind of says anything or, or not, but there's, there's a sense, at least internally here, that that we are not misrepresenting the teachings and mm. have somehow managed to to maintain that sense of lineage or authenticity. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. I mean, that's got to be kind of a tightrope walk, you know, right? Yeah, it's it's, it's delicate. It's yeah, really yeah, yeah, it's really sure. delicate. And and I think it's always open to this idea that if somebody wants to go deeper, there yeah. are the you know, the resources are there to do that. So And that was always our thing like there are teachers out there who are far more qualified and experienced than I am, you know, and there are so many different places you can go and learn about this stuff, but they will only ever attract a certain number of people. Mm -hmm. And we're probably talking less than 5% of the world's population. So what about the other 95% who have never even heard of meditation or looked at it or have thought about it and thought it wasn't for them or tried it and felt they couldn't do it? Or are automatically turned off to it because exactly. of, you know, sort of reasons that have nothing to do with the yeah. value of it because of what somebody's wearing or something. Exactly. Like that. And that's what excites me, kind of, you know, putting meditation in front of people who've never even thought about it or putting it in places where it's never existed. Like That's, I think, what kind of drives the, the mm -hmm. passion. Well, let's talk about the science and the benefits, yeah. right? Let's talk about neuroplasticity. Let's talk about focus, all of these things. I mean, let's let's assume that, that you know, I'm a listener. I'm listening to this, mm -hmm. and this is my first introduction to meditate. I mean, of course, I've heard of meditation, but, you know, I'm not convinced that this is something that I really need to spend any time on. Yeah. So... Number one, I would say I never tell anyone they should meditate. I would just say from a, a scientific point of view, look, there are these research studies that have been done. And in these research studies, there have been many, many benefits that have been discovered. Mm -hmm. I, would, I would recommend that you have a look at those. If you're inspired to try, give it a go. Like base it on, don't do it because someone else tells you to do it. Do it because you feel motivated to do it and then continue to do it because you recognize the benefit yourself. In terms of the medicine internally, they're not obviously with us in the recording studio today. I would always defer. We have a chief medical officer, uh, Dr. David Cox, and we also have a neuroscientist, Claudia. And both of them are far more adept in talking about this stuff. But as you mentioned earlier, there are over 5,000 papers, peer-reviewed, published studies, showing that Meditation, mindfulness can help us with everything from reducing anxiety, reducing depression and the relapse of depression, decreasing the incidence of insomnia, improving heart health, decreasing our cholesterol levels, all the way through to, I mean, there's sort of stuff around chronic pain, there's 
uh, increasing levels of empathy. And sometimes you look at like the spread of this and it's like, you know, how is this even possible? How can one thing like have this impact on so many different things? And I think we just underestimate the, the power of the mind. The body and mind aren't separate. We know when we get stressed in the mind that we feel it. We mm-hmm. experience it in the body. We know when we're really relaxed and happy, we feel that in the body. So it's maybe not such a surprise that we see these kind of benefits well, arising. Well, we look at the amount of time, energy, and money spent on sort of taking care of other things that are less important. <laughs> yeah. Know? Whether it's like, you know, shampoo for your hair or brushing your teeth. <laughs> Speak or... for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, what do we do to tend to our mental health? Well, yeah. uh, we, oh, I guess, you know, when we get home, we pour ourselves a cocktail and we watch Dancing with the Stars. Yeah. And that's our, that's our way of relaxing yeah. or watch a football game or something like that. And that's not tending to, you know, that's not doing sort of mental push-ups. Not at all. And there's, there's, you know, there's different ways. Some people, like, it's interesting when I look at, you know, we work with professional sports people and sports teams and corporations. And for them, it's more about focus, productivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and for them, it is about, it's like training the mind. Like you say, it's almost mental push-ups. For a, for a very specific purpose. Exactly. Right. Um, and then I think for, I actually believe for a bigger demographic, it's more like, you know, how can I sleep better at night? How can I feel a little less stressed? How can I have better relationships with those around me? And those things, they're huge. Make even a small shift in one of those areas in life, and that is a life that's transformed right away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I take it that although your doctor, before you left on your your adventure to become a monk, had suggested that you take yeah. Prozac, that Prozac <laughs> at some point did not become necessary? I never took I mean, Prozac. What was your, your happiness? <laughs> you seem like an affable, happy guy. You know? Yeah, I, I, I never went down that, that route. Um well, those are tempting sometimes when, you know, a doctor, a person in authority tells us to do something. It can be mm-hmm. tempting to, to go down that road. I mean, when you look at, at sort of this, the state of mental health and the extent to which we you know, we're so quick to medicate yeah. um, people to deal with their, you know, sort of happiness issues, depression, yeah. et cetera. I mean, what do you make of that? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not anti-medication. I feel that there are times when it's extremely important and very, very helpful. So I don't think it's meditation versus medication. But I do think we have a tendency, and I would say this is especially true in the US, having lived in a lot of different countries, to over-medicate and to medicate a little too quickly. Someone joked to me when I said I was moving to to LA and they said, wow, like over there you can hear people rattle as they walk down the street, the the pills in their pockets <laughs> kind of uh, sh- shaking around. And I am constantly astonished, not only how many people self-medicate, but also how openly people talk about it. Mm-hmm. Kind of the, Yeah, there's no stigma. There's no stigma whatsoever. And there is in some countries, I would say. So... I would love to see a shift. I'd love to see a shift in terms of prevention. So I think far too often in our society, we wait until something happens until trying to kind of fix it. And that's what the medication kind of thing is, you know. Mm-hmm. There's already a problem. If we can get into a pattern in society, whether it's ourselves, the next generation, preferably both, where we're taking preventative care of the mind, where we're actually carving out, prioritizing 10, 15 minutes in the day, whatever it might be, 
to look after, to clean the mind each day. We don't even need to get to the point where we have to decide whether to medicate or not. Like that's, I think, the potential. Mm-hmm. That's beautifully put, and and to me, that's the future of medicine. You know, functional so. medicine, preventive medicine. You know, in the physical yeah. realm as well. And it's no coincidence. You know, we have we have fifty four research studies on the table right now. Thirty four are in motion, and these are all reverse engineered. So these are hospitals clinics, universities coming to us and saying, we believe that mindfulness and meditation can be a meaningful intervention with these types of symptoms. Can we test it? And we're seeing time and time again, it makes a difference. And the more the medical community embrace that, the more I think we'll see it move from right now, it's being seen more of a a treatment Mm -hmm. or management treatment. But I think over time, it will move from treatment to management to prevention. Mm -hmm. We're talking about the health impacts. We're talking about the improved ability to focus. We're talking about the impact on happiness. But for me, like in my personal experience, the most profound um, impact that meditation has had on me is, well, first, sort of the watershed moment of of truly sort of beginning to understand that there's a difference between who I am and what my brain is saying, the mental chatter of my mind. And then kind of tangentially to that, this idea of story. You know, you talked about the power of story, your story, how everybody has a story. And we all tell ourselves a story about ourselves. And generally unless you're an incredibly well-adjusted person. You're, not, you're usually not telling the greatest story about Absolutely. yourself. And you're hanging your hat on certain things that may have happened to you when you were younger. Yeah. And you use those as reasons to do or not do things. Yeah. And what meditation has given me is, first, just a greater awareness of that simple fact, and then mm. tools and the sort of acuity and ability to reframe that story, to tell a new story, to empower me to understand that I have control over that. And I don't have to be a passive, you know, I don't have to be a passenger on that bus where this is just, you know, I'm assuming that this is just what it is. Yeah, it's a beautiful way of of describing it, I think. You know, so often words like freedom and liberation are used around meditation. I, I well, sometimes it can sound a bit kind of much to sort of liberation, but there is. It's, it's a sense of being liberated. We we let go. We put down our baggage from the past. We let go of our expectations for the future. And in that moment, we're free. Mm-hmm. Like, there is freedom. And when we're not free, like it's, self, it's almost self-imposed, but we don't realize what it is we're doing that that is causing this sense of being constrained. And then when we discover that sense of freedom, I just think, yeah, life is... Life has changed. Uh-huh. Speaking of life changing, you're a father now. I am. So how does this uh, color your experience as a meditator, as a as a business person? Yeah, well, I mean, compared to yeah. you, which I'm a very, very, well, very in- inexperienced father. Yes, but, I'm, you're, <laughs> but the, 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 you're in the young years where it's most, yeah. you know, it's pretty intense. It is. And I, we're, we're, I think we're, we're almost... We're almost six months in. Wow. Uh, so we have a baby boy mm-hmm. called Harley. And he's a joy. I Like every new parent will say, I'm sure, it is both a joy but also incredibly hard work. And definitely, look, juggling juggling Headspace and Harley 
um, is is tricky, you know, as it mm. is for any kind of, I was going to say working parent, it doesn't matter whether you're working or not, looking after a baby, a kid, that's a full-time job right there, <laughs> yes. you know. And I think the demands of Headspace in so much as kind of traveling a lot make it make it quite quite difficult. Um, but at the same time, it just makes me really kind of cherish the time when I am at home with mm-hmm. with my wife and and Harley. It just makes me enjoy it that much more. Have you found that you need to increase your meditation game, or have you found <laughs> that now you understand why people give you the excuse of yeah. I don't have any time? <laughs> yes, yeah, it's I, I do. I have a much better understanding. I still believe and. At the moment, I mean, I only have one. Um, so at the moment, I am able to find the time, mm-hmm. and I carve out the time. And what is what is your routine now? Well, before <laughs> before Harley was born, I would get up very early. I would do my meditation usually around very early. Is a sliding is a very relative <laughs> term with you. you know, like, are we talking two thirty or not that early? No. So I mean, I suppose it's not that early. Uh-huh. I'd probably get up at like five i'd meditate for about an hour and then i'd go surfing mm-hmm. with richie um and then we'd have some breakfast and we come into work where do you go to, where do you like to surf right? um if it's a working morning so during the week uh we just go local so op or venice somewhere mm-hmm. like that um but if it's the weekend we'll go a bit further further afield north or south um but obviously now that's changed a little bit uh, my wife is up during the night, and so my kind of shift, if you like, is the is the morning shift because I'm up early anyway. Um, I do that while she kind of gets some more more sleep. So I tend to spend that time now between sort of five and seven in the morning, mm-hmm. uh, looking after Harley. We we hang out a bit, we play a bit. Sometimes I'll do a bit of meditation if he's if he's settled and quite kind of content. Then we'll do, you know, we'll do, I'll do a bit of meditation and mm-hmm. he just kind of hangs out. Very cool. Well, Andy, listen, I, uh, you know, I tried this meditation thing. You know, <laughs> I just, I can't get my brain to shut off. It just doesn't, it doesn't yeah. work for me. Really? What do you, no, no, I'm saying, <laughs> what do you, you know, what's your, I'm not talking about me. I'm just saying, like, you must have people say that to you all the time. Like, yeah. what is your, how do you respond to that? Well, I get very excited. Lament. I, I get very excited about it. Because I know there is an op- there is an opportunity for transformation right there. Because there is nobody who cannot meditate, and what excites me about it is is that person hasn't yet found or hasn't yet been shown the way to approach it in such a way that they get to experience what they think it might be, mm-hmm. and so it's 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 helping them find that that approach, you know, because. Thoughts are thoughts, you know, that that underlying sense of stillness and calm is always with us. It's not unique to one individual. Some people find it easier to let go of thoughts and experience that calm, but everybody has the potential to do it. Some people experience it the moment they first sit down. For others, it can take a number of days. For others, it can take a number of weeks. Mm-hmm. But helping people understand that it's not about switching off thoughts it's not about clearing the mind if that's the way you approach meditation then of course you're gonna feel terrible about it because it is the nature of the mind to think 
So if we can kind of flip that on its head and say, okay, instead meditation is actually about how can we learn to step back out of the out of the traffic, out of the stream of thought, and simply be present, then it doesn't matter actually. If we can really feel confident and comfortable with that, it doesn't matter if the mind is busy, whether right. it's quiet. So you can have the busiest mind in the world and you're okay with it. My friend uh, Charlie, do you know Charlie Knowles, meditation I know the teacher? Name. Yeah, I know the name. Do you know Tom Knowles? He's a Mate. sort of well-known uh, Vedic. It's familiar. Yeah, Charlie's his son. And Charlie does a lot of stuff around Venice. He okay. started this thing called The Path. That they're doing. Yes, have I have heard about that. Heard about right, that. Right. With, with Dina. Is that with? Uh, yeah, I don't know her, but yeah, I, yeah he has a partner. I think so. Right, that's right. right. So they have it in New York. And yes, that's right. And Charlie famously says that uh, meditation is failure-proof. You cannot fail at meditation. Simply by virtue of the fact that you're doing it, you are succeeding at it. Because when that thought enters and then you develop an awareness that you're having that, you can always bring it back. And that is the practice. Yeah. Right? Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. My my teacher kind of used to sum it up like this. He used to say, there is no such thing as good or bad meditation. There is only awareness or Mm non-awareness. And that's it. You can't fail. I love that. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Sounds good. But I do want to know uh, what's in store, if you're willing to share uh, for the future, for version three. Yeah. That space. Like, where where are you taking this global domination of <laughs> meditation? Yeah. Um, well, we're taking in a very physical, tangible sense. We are taking it to uh, English-speaking territory. So very excited. We're heading off to Canada this coming week. Then we're off to Hong Kong and Singapore, um, Scandinavia, Holland. So lots of lots of countries around the world where English, you know, English mm-hmm. language is widely spoken. In terms of the development of V3, we're going to do it in exactly the same way as we did V2. So V1 we built. And then we just listened and we listened to feedback and we listened to what the the user wanted and we put that together in a plan and we built V2. Mm -hmm. And when we built V2, kind of we're a lot further along the line now. We're closer to what we originally intended, what we wanted to build. We're not there yet. I think there there are certain elements that are very obvious. Kind of the community is one. I don't think we've even begun with the community. We, at the moment, there's the buddy system where you can have up to kind of five friends or family. It's like mm-hmm. a gym buddy mm-hmm. and, you know, you can check in on them. They can check in on you. I think we'd like to develop the sense of community. So traditionally, meditation, there was always like a teacher and there was a set of techniques and then there was a community. And those three things sit together, kind of supporting one another, like three legs of a stool. So we're really keen to kind of make the community a, a bigger part of it. But yeah, most of all, we'll we'll listen to the community, even in terms of the packs. Right now, it's very democratic. Uh, we have a list of of, of suggested packs. Um, once a month, it goes out to the community. They get to vote on it, mm-hmm. and whatever they vote on, that gets recorded as the as the next pack. Interesting. I mean, there's so many cool things happening in the kind of health space in the app health space with. These apps getting smarter and smarter about yeah. reading your behavior patterns yeah. and your you know, like kind of what you do and anticipating. You know, there's got to be a way to kind of build that in to sort yeah. of have whether it's something as basic as reminders, but also 
you know, hey, here's the part of the day when your your heart rate starts to go up or you yeah. know, these kinds of things. There's definitely stuff like um, calendar integration and all that sort of mm-hmm. thing that we'll, we'll have in there for sure. And together with kind of reminders and things. But in fact, there's even, there's a, it's fairly rudimentary, but there's reminder sort of functioning there now. I think one interesting area is is wearables, and we've not really kind of talked about it. I have really mixed feelings about it. I think there is there is something interesting there in that there is the potential, again, for it's a conversation to take place. So let's just say it's a watch, and the watch recognizes that your heart rate is spiking. Okay, it's kind of interesting if your watch, in recognizing that, can then suggest to you and serve you up mm-hmm. a little exercise a headspace exercise to do. Like that's a really nice conversation to be able to have. Like it's a nice intervention to be able to have. The tricky thing with wearables is meditation is not kind of goal orientated. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about kind of letting go. And so it's a tricky balance of not getting people too obsessed in the data. So we're we're just playing around with that at the moment just trying to find the optimum kind of balance. Yeah, that's very interesting. Very interesting because, you know, the typical Westerner needs that goal. They love you know, like, yeah. Hey, I got to get through. And, and, and the app is sort of orchestrated around catering to that in the sense that like, hey, here's your first 10 days. Yeah. Here, get, to, get to 30 days. Exactly. Now, okay? And so exactly. there is some recognition of that. Yeah. We, we try to do it in such a way that it's still it's sensitive of that need to want to mm-hmm. kind of progress and go on a journey and yet at the same time there's still a a sense of sort of freedom and letting go and and not trying to be too focused on the future instead being more sort of concerned with the present moment mm-hmm. very cool well i'll be excited to see how that that develops thanks man and maybe any uh final thoughts for the new meditator some words of encouragement or maybe just a tip or two that sure. people could take away. Number one, it only works if you do it. You can think about it all day long, but unless you actually do it, I met people and they've, I've, they've said, oh, it's not really working for me. And I said, how often do you do it? Eh, well, maybe like sort of once a month or something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Think about going to the gym once a month. Are we really going to see any kind of improvements? Probably not. So prioritizing it. Like, unless you do it first thing in the morning, there is a very good chance that it's going to slip down your to-do list. And you're going to find yourself in the evening, in bed, tired, thinking, oh, no, I haven't done my meditation again. And even feeling stressed or guilty about this thing that you started doing to feel less stressed about. So do it first thing in the day. Kind of almost attach it to something. So it's like, okay, shower and meditate or breakfast and meditate. So it almost becomes part of your routine in the same way as you brush your teeth or whatever else you do in the morning. But be flexible. If you can't do it in the morning, find another another time of the day. Start off realistic. You know, you're a you're a runner, which you know, like mm. you'd never I'm sure have never have attempted a, a marathon without starting at a slightly kind of, you know, shorter sh- Mm-hmm. period right, right um, and, and for some reason I don't know why it is but there's this idea that in order to get any benefit out of meditation we have you to must... do a long time right? <laughs> yeah, we have to yeah. sit there for an hour we don't science has shown us that the benefits are felt and experienced within five minutes and now do you look back on your 19 hours a day <laughs> <laughs> what was well, that all about <laughs> well that's different uh-huh. you know I guess like I anything know. you know there's, mm-hmm. there's subtleties 
But um, so be realistic. Ten minutes a day is fine. You know, download the app. It's free to download. In the take ten, that ten minute thing, you can use that for the rest of your life. We've had people use the the free bit for two years. Um, oh, and they never subscribe. And, subscri- just keep- <laughs> and, and on, honestly, I, and I really mean this genuinely, we put it out there so that people who didn't want to subscribe or couldn't afford to subscribe were still able to use it mm-hmm. and to feel part of the community. I'm happy if, if people use it in that way. So download the app, try Take 10, prioritize it in your day and know that it only works if you do it. Right on. Thanks for talking to me. Hey, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So uh, if you're digging on Andy and you want to learn more about him, you can find him on social media. You're on Instagram and Twitter. I am indeed. Twitter, it's get underscore headspace, right? Or is it on Twitter? It's Andy, Andy underscore headspace. We have Andy, we have the okay, headspace right, account, right. which is get underscore head, headspace, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm Andy underscore headspace. And then on Instagram, it's just your name, right? Just my name, Andy Puticom. And That's it. there is the podcast of which I was honored to be a guest. There is headspace indeed. Radio or Radio Headspace. So we're doing a little swap here. I know, we're doing right? A little exchange. Cool. Um, awesome, man. I really appreciate it. Cool. That was fantastic. Thanks. Pleasure. No, thank you so much. Peace. Plants. All right, how about that, you guys? I would call that another powerful, life-changing conversation. If you have struggled with these ideas of meditation and mindfulness, I really hope that Andy cleared a few things up for you. I hope that he took some of the mystery out of it and finally inspired you to, once and for all, begin a journey that truly will improve your life in countless ways. I can attest to that. Keep sending me the questions for future Q&A podcasts to info at richroll.com. For all the information, education, products, tools, resources, and inspiration you need to take your health, your wellness, your fitness, and your self-actualization to the next level, go to richroll.com, peruse our nutrition products, our education products, and yes, our garments, all made with 100% organic cotton. If you're into online courses, I got two of those at mindbodygreen.com. The Art of Living with Purpose and The Ultimate Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition. Really proud of those. Check those out. They're right on the homepage of that site. You can find information about them there, again, at mindbodygreen.com. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. Pick up the free app to listen to episodes older than the most recent 50 you see on iTunes. It's just the Rich Roll app in the uh, app store. Easy to find and totally free. Support the show by telling a friend. Keep using the Amazon banner ad and keep sharing it on social media. Yes, you guys, I love that. All right, see you in a couple days. Peace. Plants.